The following audio is the recording of a sermon delivered at St. Rose Community Church. You can visit our website at strosecc.org. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Proverbs, chapter 15. Book of Proverbs, chapter 15. If you do not have a copy of God's Word, slip up your hand, and uh, one of our church members will be glad to, to bring you one. If you're with the threes and fours class, you're dismissed. Thank you for worshiping with us. You can go back and meet Miss Nicole at the back. Proverbs chapter 15 is where we will begin, beginning in verse 16 here in just a moment. We are, as a church family, working through the book of Proverbs, chapters 1 through 9. We hit every single verse in chapters 1 through 9 progressively as it is structured to be these individual lectures or poems that tell us about wisdom how to know God, and how to live in God's world, God's way. But chapters 10 through uh, chapters 29 are more sporadic. They're individual sayings about how to live wisely. So over the past few weeks, what we've been doing, we've been doing case studies on what the Proverbs have to teach us about wisdom in particular categories of living. So we have looked at what God's wisdom has to say about the concept of friendships, what wisdom has to say about the concept of speech or words, what wisdom has to say about the necessity of patience in our lives. This morning, uh, though it would have been brilliant to do so, we are not talking on the theme of motherhood. And the reason for that is, is that theme does not come to full focus until chapter 31, and that'll be actually our last sermon in the book of Proverbs. It's actually amazing, because what you see in that is Lady Wisdom, who's been speaking uh, in a sort of metaphorical type of way, Lady, Lady Wisdom, as we've seen speaking the whole time, chapter 31 actually paints us the picture of Lady Wisdom incarnate. Like, what does Lady Wisdom look like when she's a real person on earth with us. And so for the theme on motherhood and biblical womanhood and God's glorious intention through all of that, stay tuned uh, till mid-June because that's coming in mid-June. But for now, the theme that we're actually taking this morning, I think, I suppose today's paradigm is actually very applicable to the great responsibility of mothering. Today we are looking at the theme of stewardship from Proverbs. As Christians, our whole life is a stewardship. And what I mean is, is that a great and glorious God is the one from whom every blessing flows. And He gives to us, His children, good gifts to steward for His glory. That is to manage, to point the world back to Him. Everything in our lives, every breath is a gift that we did not deserve. Something given to us to manage for God, on God's behalf, for His glory, for our good, for our enjoyment, but for His glory most ultimately. All of life is a stewardship, and certainly parenting is a stewardship. Your children are most ultimately not yours. They are the Lord's before they are yours. 
all of life is a stewardship. We steward everything from our time to our talents, even our money. So we will look at what the Proverbs have to say, particularly about stewardship, particularly about how we steward our resources, our finances. Now let me give a warning on the front end for the visitor in the room. We are not a church that talks about money very often. We do not teach financial blessing is God's will for your life or for my life. I am not purchasing private jets or big mansions. The goal of this ministry is not to get money from you just as the goal of the Christian life is not to get as much money for ourselves as we can. Money is not the theme of this ministry. You just happen to show up on the day that we're looking at it in Proverbs. But stewarding money, finances, resources, is a big part of our lives, and it reveals a lot about what we think about God. According to the book of Proverbs, there is a wise way to think about our resources in our life, and there's a foolish way. There's a God-glorifying way to steward what we've been given, and there's a self-glorifying way to steward what we have been given. Wisdom is living in God's world, God's way. And one of the dominant aspects of living in this world every day is how we steward what we have been given. Solomon who wrote much of the Proverbs, is not only the wisest man on the planet at the time of writing these Proverbs, he's also the wealthiest man on the planet. But the wisdom that he provides in this book was countercultural to the wisdom that comes natural to the human soul. The wisdom he provides in this book is a countercultural wisdom. He calls us to consider the value of our stuff differently than the world around us. And so this is what I want to begin with. I want to begin with verse 16 of Proverbs 15. Then I'll pause and pray for understanding. Verse 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the Proverbs, and we thank you for what this study and this sermon particularly says about you. Help us to behold you in all of your generosity this morning, and help us to reflect you to the world. Stir our hearts to worship, stir our hearts to repentance, help us to see true and beautiful things that you've inspired for us to see this morning. We pray, God, speak to us by your grace and for your glory alone. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So one of the things that struck me this week as I was compiling all the passages on stewardship, financial stewardship in Proverbs, was the way in which the author actually devalues what we value most. What the author consistently does is tries to adjust what you think is most important in your life naturally. This is the first thing that I want you to notice about the verse we just read and the ongoing theme in Proverbs. Truth number one, wisdom values God more than wealth. Wise people, according to the Proverbs, never 
misplace their priorities. And they never make what is non-essential the most essential. What is not most valuable in the place of most valuable. They never give wealth the authority and the influence over their lives that only God should have. So let me read verse 16 again. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble with it. Again in chapter 16, verse 16, how much better to get wisdom than gold. To get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. There's a choice to make about what you deem most valuable in your life. And according to Proverbs, it is better not to be wealthy and to know God more deeply. Wealth is not worth acquiring it if it in any way hinders our ability to fear the Lord. That is to know the Lord, who he really is, and to commune with him as he really is. If serving God, worshiping God, knowing God in any way is crowded out by our pursuit of financial security, then we have a problem, a problem that the Bible identifies as an idolatry problem. We have a little g God substitute. When something else carries more authority in our decision making than the God of all authority, it would be better, according to Proverbs, to have very little money and to have very much of God than to have much money and very little of God in our lives. Could you imagine a society, a kingdom, if you will, that pursued deep relationship with God as diligently as they pursue financial security? What would your life look like if you pursued deep relationship with God as diligently as you pursue financial peace or comfort? Jesus draws a clear line in the sand. Either, either you worship and submit the authority of this God who wants what's best for you, or you worship and submit to some other kind of God in your life. There's no in-between. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Something will direct how you orient your life. The question is, which or what or who supremely directs it? Do you believe that a simpler life with less luxuries, less security, less stuff would actually be a better life if you lived more consistently in surrender to the Lord Jesus? Do you believe that it's better to have less of everything else and more of the one true God, but not just more of God. When, when things like wealth are dethroned in our lives, we actually might have more time to not, not only for worshiping God rightly, but for the blessing of walking in righteousness with other people. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 8, better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. It would be better to have less money and more righteousness in your life with other people. We should always question whether more money or less money actually enables us to be more faithful. 
Lower paying jobs that enable us to be more faithful to God should always be on the table. Less demanding jobs that allow us to make more disciples should always be an option. And the problem is, is that from little bitty children, a lot of us, our parents, in loving ways, unintentionally, because they wanted what's best for us, they unintentionally taught us that the most important thing in our life was financial security. We were raised to pursue a dollar at the cost of everything else. Success, for many of us, where we were told, is a good paying job and a good 401k. And over time, not even realizing it, a new God sat on the throne and made decisions for us. We've been taught in our culture that making more money is always better. But according to Proverbs, it's not True. Sometimes making less is better. Money has a way of drawing out what is unrighteous in us. Greed and anger and selfishness and covetousness and anxiety and independence and even untruthfulness are things that are drawn out by this desire for the comfort and wealth and security. Proverbs 17.1 says this, Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. Proverbs 15, 27, whoever's greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. Proverbs 28, 25, a greedy man stirs up strife, but the one who trusts in the Lord will be enriched. You see, when wealth becomes the top priority, it's not just our relationship with God that suffers, it's our household that suffers. We sacrifice peace in our own households on the altar of more feasting in the house. And this proverb seems to suggest that families might actually be happier with home-cooked rice and beans on a small table in a small house than a feast in a mansion with a lot of strife. If our pursuit of great treasure brings trouble with it in our relationships and our family and managing our children and loving our spouses and our service to the church, then we should always be willing to reevaluate who it is we're giving the authority in our lives. Now, it's not that wealth is evil by any means, as we will see in a moment. Great men and women of God have been wealthy and used it for the glory of God for centuries. It's rather that wealth can never be the priority. It's a helpful tool, but it's a terrible God to serve. (coughs) Truth number one, wisdom values God more than wealth. Furthermore, it's not just that wisdom values God more than wealth. Truth number two, wisdom trusts God more than wealth. Proverbs 18.11 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city, and like a high wall... In his imagination. The proverb seems to suggest that to trust in wealth is to trust your own imaginative security. Wealth cannot be the high wall of safety for our lives and for our children's lives that it promises to be. Wealth cannot be the strength of our city and protection against catastrophe. It cannot be because ultimately God must be. There is no amount of money that can protect you from the things you fear most. 
There is no insurance policy, no investment, no financial benchmark that can provide us a sense of security that our souls are longing for in a broken world. There will always be this nagging uncertainty in the soul, no matter what your bank account says. No job that will end your anxiety. At any given moment, your business can always tank. Cancer doesn't care how many zeros are in the account. Natural disaster doesn't care about you. Wealth does not protect your marriage. Wealth does not stop your anxiety, doesn't end your depression, doesn't give you the joy that your soul is longing for. Wealth will not protect you from the things you fear most. Only faith and a sovereign God who cares for us will bring us the kind of rest and security that our souls are actually longing for. See, we as Christians, we're actually freed from having to make financial prosperity our top priority. We, we are freed to work and rest for the right reasons. Our top priority is an eternal God who actually loves us. And again, Jesus picks up from the Proverbs and he teaches this kind of wisdom to his disciples, not to guilt them about how they're spending their money, but to communicate to them there's a better way to live life than to think that there's some future security that will rest all of your anxieties. Jesus pulls his disciples in close in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, and he says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. What you eat, what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on. It's not life more than food and body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to span of life? So why, why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon, right, who wrote the Proverbs, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, you, little, you of little faith? Do not be anxious, therefore, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The, the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. What is it we are to do then? Jesus, verse 33 Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Remember, it's, none of this means that wealth is inherently evil. It's a great tool. It's a terrible God. This also doesn't mean, though, that poverty is inherently good. In fact, uh, some people have made this mistake, that, that, that I, I, must, I must sort of put myself in a position of being the most poor then to, to serve this God, and that's not always the case either. In fact, poverty, though not always the case, can sometimes be a result of your own sin. <laughs> Truth number three is this, wisdom rejects laziness that leads to poverty, so if you're broke as a joke in here and you're like, yeah, get them, preacher, all those rich people, <laughs> hold on a second. <laughs> wisdom, true wisdom in God's world does not embrace a passive sort of laziness in the world. The Proverbs have a lot to say about this, right? So listen, Proverbs 10, verse 4, a slack hand causes poverty, but the hand of the, the diligent makes 
rich. He who gathers in summer is a prudent son. He who sleeps in harvest is a son who brings shame. Proverbs 12, 11, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. The book of, the, book of the Bible is a very a practical book. We live in a real world. Finances are not evil in and of themselves. You need them to eat. The Bible is not anti-finances, and it's certainly not anti-work. It's pretty realistic here. You receive finances in the world only by virtue of whether you're able and willing to work for it. We all, everyone in the room, should be putting our hand to the plow somehow to care for the household that God has entrusted us with. It's not a bad thing, church family, to try to get a promotion. (laughs) It's not a bad thing to make more money. Not a bad thing to become as wealthy as you can by working hard. In fact, it's sinful to be lazy and to expect others to cover for your laziness, to spend all your time pursuing worthless things and then to expect others to take care of you. This is over and over and over in the Proverbs. Proverbs 12, 24, the hand of the diligent will rule while the slothful will be put to force Labor. 1227, whoever's slothful will not roast his game, but it's the diligent who will get precious wealth. Chapter 13, 4, the soul of a sluggard craves and gets nothing. Chapter 18, 9, whoever is slack in his work is a brother to him who destroys. Chapter 19, 15, slothfulness cast into a deep sleep. And then just over and over and over again. Now, not every impoverished person is impoverished because they are lazy. Life in this broken world is much more complex than that. So this does not give you the right to driving down the road and see someone who is homeless say, oh, it is because they are lazy. That most certainly is not always the case. But if you're a Christian person in the room and you or your family is living in great need because you refuse to do the hard work or to be responsible with what God has given you, then you need to repent. It is sin. The hours you spend self-indulging with entertainment rather than self-sacrificing for your family is sin. It is selfishness. It is refusal to glorify God with what He's given you. It is lack of gratitude. It is lack of self-control. It is lack of the selflessness that Jesus has called us to. Laziness is a refusal to sacrifice your own comfort for the mission of God. And it will leave you physically and spiritually and relationally bankrupt. And here's why it's such a big deal. Christian, God has gifted you with so much. I mean, our whole existence has been given to us. Your breath is a gift. Your ability to work is a gift. If you have any money at all, any support, any place to lay down your head, it's a gift. God owns it all. He sustains it all. He provides it all. And we should pursue any kind of wealth with any might we've been given to reflect the generosity of a good God who has a mission to the ends of the earth. Wealth's not bad. It can actually be wonderful for the kingdom of God. Truth number four is this. Wisdom. What is wisdom when it comes to stewarding what God has given us? Wisdom stewards wealth to reflect the generosity of God. Proverbs 11, 24. One gives freely, yet he grows all the richer. 
Another withholds what he should give, and he only suffers want. Proverbs eleven twenty five. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters himself will be watered. Now, we get this type of like rest as a Christian not to worry because we serve a generous God. And, and what that does is it frees us to reflect Him to a lost and dying world. It frees us to be generous with whatever He's given us. Now, I do not believe that there's some divine mathematical formula here to where if you give so much money, you receive so much money back. I do not believe that God is a cosmic stock market always delivering returns in this life based on what you give. Our reward is primarily in the eternity to come that we been promised. Jesus himself warns that if you follow me for wealth, it's going to be a big problem. He says, if you follow me, it may cost you everything. In fact, none of Jesus' 12 disciples actually become more wealthy because they followed Jesus. One guy tried that, betrayed Jesus, and hung himself. The rest actually gave up their lives, suffered persecution, lost their homes because they followed Jesus. Hebrews chapter 10, one of my favorite passages of Scripture that just speaks about the, the perspective of the Christians in those early days, says this, Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, something sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partnered with those so treated. You had compassion on those in prison, and then listen to this line, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. The promise of the Lord is not that your house will not be plundered for worshiping King Jesus. The promise is that you have a lasting house that no one can take away from you. And what that does, what that does is it frees us to hold very loosely the things of this world, to, to say, let's, let's use this for the thing that is most eternal. And as we do that, there is an active principle of wisdom in the world that God does bless generosity both in this life and in the next. Proverbs articulates this connection that when you give freely and when you don't hold tightly and you walk in the joy and the selflessness of the Lord, you tend to receive more to be generous with. You use the resources God gives you for the mission of God. God tends to give you more resources to then spend on the mission of God. And I, let, me, let me just say, I, I, just in my own life, I just was talking with somebody yesterday about the, even just the early days of ministry. My dad was a lawyer, and, uh, and that was kind of what I thought that I was going to go do and I remember coming to him, and, uh, and he's, a great, he's, he's a Christian man, and I love him very much, but I remember the conversation very clearly when I came to him and said, Dad, I think I want to be a preacher. And he said, that's great, son, but what are you going to do for a real job? I'm trying to follow the Lord, and basically what it, what it meant for me was that I needed to leave one school that costed a little bit and I'd go to another school that costed a lot to get a job that was going to pay a lot less. <laughs> And I remember the early days of being married to Anne Marie, and, and we were in our senior year of college, and I was cutting grass like crazy every day. Like, I would just knock on people's door asking if I could do something for them, and they'd be like, yeah, you know how to build a deck? And I'd be like, yeah, I do. No clue how to build a deck. <laughs> and I would go 
figure it out. Amory was working hospice, uh, taking care of older people and bathing them, and, and we're just like trying to figure it out. But I, I just look back at my life, and I'm like, never were we less joyful or like less happy because of what we had in the account. Like I'm, I'm not more happy right now than I was 11 years ago. And when I look back, I've, I've never had to stress or worry or be concerned or plead, oh God, please, may we eat tonight. But there's just been this like rejoicing and this, this peace in Christ that the, the promises are eternal and that, and then, and then you also, when you live that way and you walk in this way and you let God be generous in your life and you, you trust Him, what you get to do is you get to watch God provide in ways. You, you, don't, you don't have the luxury of being dependent on yourself, right? You, you get to watch God do things that you never thought He could do. And, and, and you end up worshiping more <laughs> when you live this way. Paul picks up the theme as he's talking to the Corinthians, encouraging them just to be gracious with whatever you have. And, and he gives them that promise in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. He says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. E- each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. For God loves a cheerful giver. Do you hear that? Cheerful giver. This is, this is not something that the Proverbs or that Second Corinthians is calling you to begrudgingly do and live a miserable life. This is something the Bible is saying, hey, there's more happiness here. <laughs> there's, there's joy here. We're, we're, we're resources are no longer a thing to somehow scratch the itch of your longing sinful soul. They're something to now use in joy for the glory of God. God loves a cheerful giver, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Verse 10 says, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for the food will supply and multiply your seed, sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. When you live this way, God actually looks more glorious. When you live a life that values less what all the world says is most valuable, and you value most what what they, they're confused about, what it is is that they, they're actually drawn to this God, which you think is most important in your life. Early on in Christian ministry, before we started this church, we were doing a college ministry, and me and Emery lived in a, a single bedroom house, and you could stand in the kitchen, you could touch both walls like this. And, and we were trying to do ministry, and we wanted to be hospitable, but we did not have the money to be able to feed all the people. And so we started this thing on Wednesday night called Tea Time. And we invite everybody over to our house on Wednesday night, and we have 15, 20 college students to disciple them and care for them. And we had Tea Time, and we'd bring out all the little teapots, and we'd pour tea. And they didn't know that it was our way of being hospitable that didn't cost us anything, right? <laughs> and God was magnified in that. Wisdom stewards wealth for generosity that accomplishes the mission of God. 
We, we are generous to care for our families. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children and his children's children, but the sinner's wealth is laid up for the righteous. Listen, if you are irresponsible with your finances now and you rack up all kinds of debt, you are being unloving to your future children. It's not just for our families that, that we're good stewards of this. Perhaps that's the easiest kind of generosity, but we, we're generous to people who, who can't pay us back. Just like I can't pay God back for the blood of Christ that was shed for me, I'm to give to others who cannot give me back what I think I deserve. Proverbs 14, 31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. Proverbs 19, 17, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay for his deed. Listen, the, the gut reaction to the gospel of the first Christian church was to immediately begin to glorify Jesus by sacrificing their stuff. I mean, when, when the first century church heard and learned of what God gave for them to save them, though they did not deserve to be forgiven or loved or lavished upon any kindness, the gut reaction on day one, in the, in the moment after the Spirit falls, the most amazing thing was not the miracles that was happening. The most amazing thing was that everybody immediately counted their material possessions to be less important than displaying Christ to one another in the community of faith. They gave to support the helpless, especially widow and orphans. They gave to support the work of other churches far away who'd been slammed with famine. They gave to missionaries in order to get the gospel to places where it had not yet been preached. They gave for the work of pastor teachers who would lead the ministry of the word week in and week out. There's something especially God-glorifying about this because there's something especially reflective of the gospel in this. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 1 Peter 1, 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. God has given to us in such a way that he cannot be repaid. You cannot earn your salvation. You cannot pay him back for the price that he paid on the cross. He's given to you the needy, though he needed nothing from you. And so when we give of ourselves the way God has given of himself, we show the world this is the kind of God who not only has given us this great salvation through the blood of Christ, but he's promised that our eternity, you know, your eternity, you know what it is, Christian? An eternal experience of the generosity of God. The promise is that God's plan is to lavish upon you all the riches of an eternal God forever and ever and ever. Amen. Do, do you realize this is the promise God holds out for you in Ephesians chapter one, listen to just the language of it. You could read the whole chapter, but we're not going to do that. I'll, I'll pick up in verse six. To the praise of his glorious grace, 
He's blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness and trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. He goes on to talk about this lavishing, and then at the very end, verse 14, he speaks about the Holy Spirit being given to us as a guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Christian, you've been promised a great inheritance. Be generous now because the promise awaits you where one day all you will ever experience forever and ever is the generosity of God. So let me leave you uh, with a few takeaways as we close this morning. Here's a few takeaways. What, what, what do you do with all this? Number one, number one, be a good steward. We've said over and over and over again that every single part of our lives is under God's jurisdiction. That means your budget is a spiritual barometer. If all I could see was your bank account, your spending habits, your budget, or your calendar, what would I say is most valuable to you? Would I even be able to tell that you're a Christian by how you steward your time, your resources, your finances? The Christian life is simply a stewardship. Number two, make generosity both systematic and spontaneous. Generosity is not going to fall from heaven and hit you in the head. In the Old Testament, the people gave systematically, regularly, a percentage for the worship of God. In the New Testament, they gathered on the Lord's Day. They gave for the work of the ministry each week. This was just part of the weekly rhythm and worship. But at the same time, they also watched for the Spirit to move and to lead, that they might sacrifice spontaneously, whether that be missionaries showing up on their doorstep or Christians fleeing from persecution who'd lost everything. And they needed to step in and be the hands and feet of Jesus. That kind of generosity, that kind of generous posture, it takes planning, intentionality. It will not happen accidentally. Number three, work hard for the right reasons. The Bible encourages hard work, but not at the expense of faithfulness to other areas. Not, not just for self-indulging. Laziness is sin, but so is disproportionate work that sacrifices obedience to other areas in life. There are ways to work for your own glory, for your own sense of identity, for your own greed, and there's a way to work for the glory of God. Which are you doing on a regular basis? And lastly, number four, rest in Jesus. It's a blessing that we get to steward anything of God in our lives. We've sinned against a holy God. We only deserve judgment from the righteous hand of God, and He extends to us not judgment, but forgiveness and an invitation to participate in his mission to the ends of the earth. What a privilege to rest in these promises. So I'm going to close with just, this is really my favorite passage in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 4, and we'll read this and then pray. 1 Peter 4, 10. As each has received a gift, use it. To serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves with the strength that God supplies. Why? Why do we do this? In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together.
Father, I just pray for my life and my household. I pray that you would look glorious by how my own household values you more than anything in the world. I pray for our church that we would be, our, our mindset and our worldview would be so strange to our families and our friends and our neighbors who don't have Christ. I pray that we, how we steward our finances and resources and homes and lives and relationships and time and jobs, God, I pray that, that there would be a strangeness to us that would cause the world around us to say, what must relationship with their God be like that they'd be so free to be generous and so free from anxiety? Lord, I pray, be magnified in every corner of our lives and help us to value you more than anything at all, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.